Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I am your host, Nick A.R. Johnson, and I am glad to have back in the building Tyler Metcalf. And we are here to talk about Tyler's most recent articles. So, Tyler, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. Always thrilled to be back on with you. Yeah, it's been a lot shorter than it usually has been between your appearances. So I'm glad to have you back on so soon. And glad to have you back on to discuss this specific article and this specific player Reed Shepard is the subject of the article, and I'll just read off the title here because I think it's very fitting for sort of what we're going to talk about today. Reed Shepard's numbers are still outlandish, but he remains the real deal. And, you know, that's sort of the obvious, you know, 10,000 foot view of this. But I'm curious on your end, why did you decide to write about Reed for this article at this point in the draft cycle? Uh, Well, I mean... One reason was because no one at our site had done a full feature article on him yet. So it's like, okay, there well, you, go. Uh, uh, well, you know, well, what one of the top guys is free. So that always makes me why, happy why as the editor. Always <laughs> makes me happy when someone picks someone we haven't written about 700 times. <laughs> but I know more importantly, um, it was because I was kind of confused by him. Um, I was intrigued. I was excited. I was skeptical. I was every range of emotion that you can be with some of these prospects. And I just kind of wanted to try and find some answers and try and put some of those concerns to bed or raise even more questions or just try and figure out where I actually stood with them. Reed is very interesting to evaluate because he falls along a lot of sort of bylines of where I feel like the NBA has been going the last few years. And, you know, some of those are positive. Some of those are negative. The negative one, I think, is the most obvious. So we can start there. He's generously listed at 6'3". And you know, the league has been pushing smaller guards more and more towards the periphery over the last couple of seasons in particular. So, you know, that's sort of an area that Reed has to overcome. The flip side of that is honestly pretty much everything else. I mean, in terms of the positive stuff, you know, he's been exceptional defensively, which helps make up for a lot of, you know, the sort of height related issues. I mean, if you're a smaller guard who can defend as well as Shepard has, it's a lot easier road than, you know, for say someone like a Rob Dillingham, right. Who, you know, has Reed has a couple of inches on him, but Reed also has a lot of defensive acumen and defensive skills that we've seen so far this year that Rob doesn't. The other sort of thing that interests me with Reed is he's not sort of your heliocentric, everything runs through me type of primary playmaker. And that really fascinates me about his game is, you know, as you mentioned, his relatively low usage rate, despite his spectacular efficiency, you know, on the one hand, maybe it makes you think, okay, is a team really going to run the entirety of their offense through him, you know, just give him the skills that he has. The flip side, of course, is it makes him a nearly picture perfect fit with a bigger sort of primary initiator where, you know, Reed can take the tougher, you know, smaller water bug point guard types defensively, while also providing a lot of off ball value on the other end of the floor. Yeah, and that was one of my biggest frustrations with him, really, was that the usage is under 19 right now. And for someone with his efficiencies, with his scoring versatility, with that shooting, the passing, the decision-making, the assist-to-turnover ratio of like 2.2, you want that to be up around 25 instead. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the problem with that is that for the bulk of the season, him and Rob Dillingham have always basically entered the game together. And that's not an indictment on Rob. That's how Calipari is using the two of them, where it's kind of like this fire and ice combination. And Reed has been that stabilizing, um, that the, the kind of steady rock, while Rob has a little more leniency to go out there and do some of the absurd stuff that we've seen him do. Um, 
so you know, I, I that that none of that is meant as a shot at Rob. Just how Kentucky's been using those two guys. It, it's tough because I really want to see what Reed does with more usage. And in the games where we've seen him take more than ten shots, the numbers have been good. The efficiency is still there, but the bulk of his season has been single-digit shot attempts and really low usage and single-digit points. And it's really, really frustrating because you see how good the shot is you see how good the decision making is but so often we see him just kind of float too eager eagerly almost to the periphery when there are a lot of times where he could really take over a game and we just don't see it from him it's funny because that can sort of go two directions i think and you know the name that sort of stands out to me immediately when looking at those usage rate lists is somebody who's not going to surprise anybody who's been listening to this lot to this podcast for a long time. Tyrese Halburn in his sophomore season at Iowa State was outshot. Uh, Rasir Bolton took more shots per game than Tyrese Halburn, and you know that was the kind of thing where okay, is this just Tyrese on a struggling? Let's just put it nicely, Iowa State team that year. Is this just Tyree sort of picking his spots on a team that doesn't offer him much assistance? Or is this the sort of passivity that might continue to plague his game going forward? And spoiler alert, that has not happened for Tyrese Halberton. But, you know, that's sort of the most positive upside version of this. And, you know, there's the other element where I'm willing to bet on Rob Dillingham's NBA future more than Rasir Bolton's. So, you know, that's sort of a side play in all this. But there's a difference between you know, the Tyrese Halliburton model of, okay, one other guy on the team is getting more looks versus what we're seeing from Reed, where Justin Edwards, who we've talked about quite a bit and how, you know, we (laughs) backed off of him being the number one guy in this class where we had to start the year, you know, given the season that Justin Edwards has put together, Reed Shepard shooting fewer times than him is a lot more of a problem than Tyrese being slightly outshot by Rasir Bolton. Yeah, and that that, that's one of the kind of saving graces for me is that it doesn't feel like a confidence issue um at least with reed it doesn't feel like he's like scared of the moment or anything like that it's almost like he's trying to play too much within the system and be too much of that connector piece when there are times and you know maybe maybe that's just who he is as a player um but i'm sure there a lot of that is how he's being asked or how the coaches are asking him to play and kind of facilitating that offense because coming into the season no one expected him to be one of the best NBA, if not the best NBA prospect on this team, he was well down the list and he looked awesome in the McDonald's all American game. Um, but he kind of looked like one of these guys where it's like, all right, maybe he'll be a two, three, four year Kentucky player. And it's just going to be this awesome college player that the skills were obviously there, but he's amped up the production to such a level where it's like, okay, well now he's a lottery guy, which no one really expected. So Maybe, you know, he's never been in the role of I'm going to go be the dude. I'm taking over this game Um, when he's out there. He never looks like he's lacking confidence, which is really encouraging, because if that was the case, like we've seen with Justin Edwards a lot this season, that's where it's like, oh, there are some real issues here where if that usage does come your way, you're really not going to be able to adapt and handle it like you need to. And I'm going to continue with the ridiculously unfair high-end comps here. After Tyrese Halliburton, let's go to Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's someone who also was tasked with a lot more of a caretaker role at Kentucky than maybe his skill set would have indicated. And, you know, Shea is just, you know, one of the many guards in a long line of Kentucky guards who had minimalized roles on the Kentucky team and then got to the NBA and 
were allowed to have the ball in their hands a lot more and did a lot better with it. I mean, you know, Devin Booker and Shea Gilders Alexander Alexander are the shining examples. And, you know, there's obvious reasons why it's unfair to compare Reed to either of those guys. But, you know, the concept sort of being that this is a program where historically they've given a little bit of a short shrift to some of their best guards. And that certainly seems to be happening with Reed. And so the question becomes how much of that is just the system and how much of that is just who he is as a player. You know, again, the confidence thing I think is a key part of it, but if he sort of views himself as more of a complimentary, you know, keep the wheels greased kind of player, then, you know, that's something that maybe an NBA team can break him out of, but it's a bit different than Shea and Devin Booker being sort of pigeonholed into smaller roles and doing great in those roles, but, you know, maybe losing a little bit of the luster off their draft stock because they weren't sort of the featured guys. Yeah, and I, I, I know that this isn't, I know you're not doing like a one-for-one comp with these guys, but it is important to point out that there's a significant size differential between yes. Reed and those guys where those guys had NBA height, strength, you know, frames. Reed doesn't, you know, he's listed at 6'3". Um, I've been told by plenty of people who have seen him in person that that feels extremely generous, uh, you know, uh, super unlike Kentucky or any college basketball program to uh, juice measurements or anything like that. But oh no, that would never happen. I, I would guess more six one, maybe six two, if he's measured in the morning. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> whereas you know you get Shea and Booker and Halliburton, and these guys are six five, six six, six four. You know that kind of range. So I, I, I definitely get what you're saying. Where in a different system, a different setting, they're able to kind of bump up that usage, take on more responsibilities. But I'm, I'm a little skeptical on how feasible that is, given the physical limitations that Reed has right now. Yeah. And, you know, the that's definitely a huge part of it. I mean, maybe, you know, in terms of slightly less lofty examples, you could go with an Emmanuel Quickly, right? And maybe yep. that's sort of more of the comp. I mean, I think Quickly has a lot more aggressive of an offensive game. He's certainly, yep. you know, very willing to shoot and was his second year at Kentucky. But, you know, if that's sort of the model that you're going off, again, you know, given how ridiculously high end I've gone with these comps, I'm not going to throw Tyrese Maxey out there next. But, you know, there's been a pattern, right? You know, the biggest names are Shea and Devin Booker, right? But, you know, this is a consistent pattern where a lot of really great Kentucky guards have struggled to get the ball as much as they need. And, you know, again, it comes down to how much of that do you think is Shepard and how much of that do you think is the system he's playing in? Yes, I, I, I guess as a, <laughs> sure. as a cop-out. Um, and I, I think the bulk of it is the system, but I think a lot of that system is kind of based on who... Reed is as a player. Um, you know, both of his parents are Kentucky players, obviously, and he's grown up a diehard Kentucky fan around the program, around that team and everything. So he, you know, I, I'm assuming that playing for this team is an absolute dream. So he's just gonna go out there and do what the coaches kind of tell him to do. I just wish that it would they would be telling him to, hey, be a little more eager to take that shot, you know, be, be a little more creative off the bounce. But when you have guys like DJ Wagner and Rob Dillingham who do a lot of that stuff, you just kind of need a, that reliable steadying presence um, that Reed has been able to provide for them all season. 
So let's break down the scoring in more detail. And as you say in the piece, you know, there's the pessimistic view that his scoring efficiency is boosted by his low shot volume. There's also the fact that, as you mentioned in the piece, in the games where he has shot double digit times, he's averaged 21 points while shooting 56 on the floor and 60 from three. So small sample size, pretty fantastic in that sample size. But in terms of sort of his offensive game, as you say in the piece, you know, ignore the cliches you'll hear about his athleticism because he is a good athlete, but he does lack that top tier explosiveness. And, you know, as you mentioned, he typically needs a screen to get to his spots. And that's where things are sort of more interesting for me, because, you know, as you mentioned, he hasn't really hunted out isolations and those aren't really his bag, but he's been spectacular in, you know, running the pick and roll, as you mentioned, 93rd percentile efficiency. But, you know, it's something where... (laughs) You know, again, there's a breakdown with how often he's shooting at the rim, which is, you know, maybe one thing you can be concerned about. But really, in terms of Shepard's offense, a lot of his best looks have come when he's allowed to run the offense and run the pick and roll. And, you know, his isolation opportunities have been almost non-existent. But even his pick and roll possessions have maybe not been as frequent as you might have liked for a player of his sort of offensive skill set. Yeah, and it's tough to kind of figure out who he'll really be as a scorer in the NBA because we're not seeing NBA guards in his kind of mold put up the kind of scoring efficiency and volume numbers that he's putting up at Kentucky right now. Um, I, the, I, the first thing I think that I, you kind of have to go through is just the jumper on its own. And yeah. whether it's off the catch, off the bounce, I buy it a thousand percent. I mean, he's 99th percentile overall on jumpers, uh, 99th percentile off the catch, 96th percentile off the dribble. So, you know, once he puts it on the deck, it, it drops off a little bit there. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but he's a lethal shooter. Um, and yeah. it's, it's all just how much of it actually translates. And there, there really isn't much of an in-between game. There isn't much. He's taken 11 floaters on the season. Uh, 26% of his shots come at the rim. So he's a really perimeter oriented shooter and scorer. And that's a little concerning. Um, but when you have 121 jump shots as a sample size, and you're in the 99th percentile um, with an effective field goal rate of 71.5%, it's kind of hard for me not to buy it translating in some form or fashion. But, you know, when we look at him compared to some of the other Kentucky guards that have come through that system, I don't think he's really going to be any of them. But I I just get a lot more Tyus Jones type vibes where he's never I'd be shocked if he's ever the leading scorer or go to guy on an NBA team. But he's effective when the ball gets to him and his decision-making is going to be astronomical and the real selling point with him, because whether it's attacking a closeout, making the right pass, making an extra pass, um, you know, passing a guy open or just taking the open look, I'm really confident in his ability to just make the right decision almost every possession. Yeah. We'll get into the passing and playmaking stuff more in depth in a little bit, but I do want to stick with the scoring for a moment. You mentioned the sort of in-between game, and this is something that you and I talked about quite a bit with Jaden Ivey back in that sort of draft evaluation where, okay, you know, if you're going to be a primary playmaker for a team, you need to at least be able to do something at all three levels of the game. And with Reed, you know, the three-point shooting, as you've already mentioned, the jump shot is like literally best of the best, right? 99th freaking percentile. Like, I guess technically there's someone who has to be in the 100th percentile because that's how synergy works, but in the 99th percentile is just about as good as anyone's reasonably going to get. 
the in-between stuff is interesting. I know you're about to slap me through the screen for this, but I have to say it anyway. The ceiling on Reed's game might be determined by what he can do, you know, in that sort of in-between area. It's not even the in-between area as much as it is just what can he do with the ball in his hands on the attack for himself rather than creating opportunities for his teammates. And if he's not going to get defenses collapsing on him every time, forcing him off the three-point line as best they can, he needs to at least be able to do something in the mid-range. And that's the kind of thing where I actually just wrote about this on Tyrese Proctor specifically, where he cut the floater out of his game in favor of his mid-range pull-up jumper. And he's been much better in that area because he's a much better mid-range pull-up shooter than he you know, is in terms of his floater game. I wonder if that's something that Reed Shepard could add to his game because certainly it seems like he might have a better shot with that than with his floater, given how loath he is to use it in the first place and how he's not particularly fantastic at it. Yeah, and I, I think it is something that he's capable of. Um, we just haven't seen it from him. I mean, just looking at synergy on jumpers from 17 feet and in, he's in the 92nd percentile. The issue oh, is that he's only... second. That's oh, God. <laughs> um, the the problem is that he's only taken sixteen of them. Yeah. So you know, for uh, he goes on a cold streak of missing five in a row, and that efficiency plummets. So it's like, how real is this? Whereas you know, conversely, we look at the his three point jumpers. He's taken almost a hundred of them and is in the ninety ninth percentile. So it's like, okay, that's real. That's the surefire. I one thousand percent buy that you are one of the best shooters outside three point shooters in this class. What happens when you can't take that? Are you yeah. going to completely disappear? Are we going to see you have four or five shot attempts on a night? Um, like we've seen him do a lot this season where the the jumper's not there, that extra pass swings to him and he's getting run off the line and he's not taking mid-range jumpers. He's not getting all the way to the rim. So I, I, I do get concerned about at what level is all of this efficiency going to translate? And if it's at such a minimal volume, is it really going to matter all that much? I mean, that's sort of the difficult question when you're talking about spacing of, I lean on this example all the time, just because it's the easiest one for me to pull off the top of my head of the one season that Rajon Rondo shot 37% from three point mm -hmm. range for the Kings, but he took two of them a game and they were all completely wide open. And, you know, the other 98 possessions of the game, he's, you know, sitting there and defenses aren't bothering to guard him because why would you, he's not going to shoot it unless he's completely wide open. And even then it's not, you know, any much better than a 37% shot. Right. And Reed Shepard is a much better shooter than that. That does him a disservice to even compare it to Rajan. But the concept there I think is similar of even if Reed's only shooting five times a game, you have to pay attention to him defensively because when the ball does swing to him, if you have left him wide open, ball's going up and it's probably going in. Right. So that's the element where even if he does become or rather continue to be, you know, a relatively low usage player, defenses still have to key in on him out there. So that's some added benefit, even if he's not shooting as much as he could be. But, you know, the flip side of that is, again, if he's only taking five shots a game, you know, great if the efficiency is incredible, but that doesn't do anywhere near as much for your team as, you know, taking eight attempts per game, but hitting 40% rather than four attempts per game and hitting 50%. Yeah, for sure. And it's just... I, I just want to see more. I, I'm, I'm being greedy. Yeah. I'm being selfish, which is an absurd thing with someone who's putting up the numbers that he is. But at his size, it, there's just no margin for error. And right. you, you just have to be, you can't be a one trick pony in the NBA anymore. Um, you know, we movement shooters are a dying breed. And we continuously see that if you get run off the line and you can't do anything after that, 
you become really easy to guard. You become really dependent on system and situation, and you're pretty easy to work out of a game script. So I don't think that that's what Reed is going to be. I think he does have versatility. I, you know, I trust his ability to put it on the deck and play make, and we'll get, we'll get into that stuff later. But in terms of scoring, I, I need to see a little bit more um, other than just the pull-up jumper, which is really, really lethal, but it's always wide open stuff. They are, you know, he's not creating a ton of space. He's not breaking a guy down in isolation. He's not getting to the rim consistently. It's pretty what what he's just on like a one track lane right now. And it's just kind of the same thing over and over again. It's perfect for what that Kentucky team needs right now. I'm just curious and skeptical sounds too harsh, but of what is the long-term upside and what else is there to his game in terms of scoring, because we haven't seen a, a whole lot else. I think the getting to the rim consistently thing is the key point. And, you know, that's honestly why I think it's worth, you know, obviously bringing it up in the article because it makes a lot of sense to, but I just mean in terms of discussing it here in terms of the in-between game, it might matter more for Reed than it would for other guards who are not going to be primary initiators because, you know, there's, again, he doesn't have the quickest first step and he's not the biggest guy. So, you know, it's a lot easier, especially given what quality of a jump shooter he is. It's a lot easier anyway for me to envision him being someone who can make you pay by forcing him off the three-point line into the, you know, mid-range game versus, you know, I don't think he's going to transform into, you know, say LeBron James at the rim overnight, right? I don't think that's particularly going to happen. So, in terms of what he's good at, you know, sort of incorporating what's likely to be the next building block for him. I think that his ability to at least make teams pay attention in the mid range is going to be more important for him than maybe some other off ball guards, because, you know, again, the size thing is a concern generally, but, you know, I think specifically that mostly will play out in terms of his finishing at the rim. So if that's going to be something that he continues to be, where he's at now, which is, you know, okay, but not anything to write home about and not exactly putting pressure on the rim that often, it'll it'd be important for him to at least have more comfort with one of the other levels of scoring, given that his three-point scoring is so spectacular. Yeah, and I, I, I just think that's a really interesting point, too, because it's it, it could really, really, really be dependent on what role he kind of goes into, where if a team takes him as a point guard, okay, maybe all of this looks different because he is really efficient scoring out of the pick and roll the playmaking needs some work we'll get into that later um but it's or is he going to kind of be brought into an nba team where he's more off ball and they have that jumbo creator where you know at you know you, you think about him in a denver or a dallas um or you know a phoenix situation where he's not the quote-unquote point guard um but he's more of an off ball shooter he's not going to any of those teams obviously because they're picking too late but that's kind of the the context where it's like, okay, well, now if you're more in an off-ball role, you're going to be a hell of an outlet for those, you know, jumbo creators um, and should be a consistently reliable knockdown shooter for him. But can you pr- pressure the defense and make them kind of change their coverages by attacking those closeouts and relocating and moving off ball a little more and cutting a little bit more consistently and doing those little things to find those open pockets to capitalize off of your teammates scoring gravity um, and not just solely knock down one dribble pull-ups or catch and shoot corner threes. So let's actually use that as an opportunity to move into talking about the passing. And this is (laughs) 
one of those things that, you know, we talked about some ridiculous synergy numbers. Here's another one for you. When we include Shepard's assists, his overall points per possession jumps from 1.163, which is, you know, casual 96th percentile to 1.519, 99th percentile. When you're averaging one and a half points per possession, <laughs> it's it's one of those things that you just look at. And it's like, that can't be right. And it's like, no, actually, actually it is. He's, he's that good at it. And I think this sort of leans into a comp that you made earlier in the piece that is, I think, a little bit more down to earth than some of the comps that I've been throwing out. But I think also, you know, really relevant here, Tyus Jones. And, you know, he's someone who I know you've adored for a long time. I've certainly adored his game for a long time. And really the thing with Tyus is you're not going to see him making mistakes. And that's, I think, the biggest element of Reed's passing playmaking game is that, as you mentioned earlier, he's going to make the right decision pretty much every time. Yeah, and whenever I talk about playmaking or passing, I, I kind of divide it up into those two kind of different quadrants where there are great playmakers and there are great passers. And the playmakers I always kind of describe as the Lamelo Balls, the Luka Doncic, the Tyrese Halliburton, Trey Young. You know, they're they're flashy, they're taking risks. Yeah, they might have some higher turnover numbers, but that's because they're passing guys open, they're manipulating defenses, and then the passers are more. The Mike Conley, the Tyus Jones, those type of guys where their assist numbers are really good, um, but the turnovers are absolutely minimal. They don't make mistakes. They're moving the ball. They know where to put it. They're accurate. They're good decision makers. They don't hesitate. And I think that Reed really falls into that latter category where, you know, conversely, Rob Dillingham for sure falls into the previous one. Um so I, I I like Reed as a passer. I love his decision making and that it's re- reflected in his assist to turnover ratio and all of those numbers. But I'm, again, a little skeptical on, okay, how is that going to translate to being a pure point guard at the next level? Because he's he's not manipulating defenses. He's not moving guys. He's not consistently passing guys open, um, you know, in transition. He, few players in this draft, if any, make a better hit ahead than he does. Um, in the half court, though, it's not there yet. Uh, he's really good at making extra passes. He's really good at kind of reading cutters off of, you know, off ball screens and that kind of stuff. But when we look at his pick and roll numbers, including passes, he's in the 47th percentile. So that ability to run a two man game, to manipulate a defense, to change pace and draw a help defender out a little bit. He hasn't developed that at all. The connective passing, the decision-making, all of that is exquisite. It's the on ball stuff that hasn't really gotten there yet. And that unfortunately meshes with his sort of struggles to score around the rim, right? That's, you know, the kind of thing where, you know, there's positive synergy between player traits and there's negative synergy. And, you know, his relative inability, again, I'm saying relative, just given the rest of his offensive numbers being so absurd, but his relative inability to get around guys, his relative inability to put pressure on the basket, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if he's the ball handler in the pick and roll, that creates fewer opportunities because defenses are collapsing on him less because there's less to collapse on, right? Because he's, you know, not putting that kind of pressure on the rim. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, in terms of complementary skills, aces, but in terms of his ability to generate concern when he's got the ball in his hands, you know, as you mentioned, transition, he's spectacular at that, but in the half court, it's a bit more of a struggle. And that's the kind of thing where a lot of it will depend as it will for every prospect, but, you know, particularly in this instance, a lot of it will depend on who's around him because if he's mostly going to be off ball spacing the floor for that Luka Doncic type, then, you know, okay, it matters a lot less, you know, in terms of teams that might actually be picking in this range, like with John Morant, John Morant's got a little bit of both of those elements, honestly, I think. And, you know, if you're 
playing as the you know shooting guard around John Morant, then your responsibility is a lot smaller and it's a lot easier to sort of work in the passing elements that he's really good at. But if he's going to a team that expects him to be the guy, that's going to be a lot of pressure in areas where A, he hasn't been that great this season, but B, and more to the point, he hasn't been asked to do all that much of for Kentucky. Yeah, and I'm just... When I think about his playmaking in the half court, I, I think it it pairs the 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 really high level stuff that we see from him almost kind of mirrors what we see in transition because in transition when he's carving up a defense, it they're scrambling, they're recovering, there's chaos, they're you know there are issues, there are lapses being made, um, and his best passing stuff in the half court comes in those similar situations where the ball swings to him and he's attacking a closeout and he's attacking a scrambling defense and sees a uh, miscommunication on a switch on the weak side and an open cutter, that kind of stuff. So when we think about that translating to the NBA, that gives me more optimism. I know we just talked about how concerned I am with some of the stuff being run off the line. Um, but in an NBA context, when that extra pass swings to him in the corner and he attacks that closeout because they're going to have to close out on him, giving a shooting, I have more faith that he's going to be able to read that weak side um, and find, you know, find cutting teammates or open shooters as that defense kind of scrambles with their secondary and tertiary rotations um, and is able to kind of carve them up that way. If a team takes him as that lead point guard to have a you know a near 2.5 assist to turnover ratio and run the pick and roll and create for others consistently i think there are going to be issues because i just don't think that's where he really thrives at least so far in his career let's move on to the defense now and this is i think the biggest part of his profile for me because of exactly the reason i mentioned up top you know there's been this sort of push that small guards have mostly been marginalized over the past couple of years in the nba but the guys of that size who do get a ton of minutes tend to be the guys who can defend really well. And Reed can defend really well. I mean, some of the numbers that you mentioned in the piece are insane. Kentucky going from 95.5 defensive rating, which would be 26 in the country, to 116, which is 344th out of 363 Division I teams. Going from, again, literally the top, almost top 5%, but essentially top 10% of defenses in college basketball to like pretty close to the bottom. It's, it's insane. And it's one of those things where, you know, again, those sort of on off metrics can be a little bit tricky to sort of handle, but when you get a signal, that's that obvious, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, college advanced numbers like that can always be a a, a little iffy um, and really influenced by, opponents and obviously you know who you're replacing because that's how on off works um <laughs> but when it's that astronomical it's like God, damn okay yeah he, he he's a good defender um but and and then you just look at like kind of the individual stuff like block and steal rate we've talked about how those translate pretty consistently block rate of 3.3 for 6.3 you know more likely closer to 6.1 6.2 guard really impressive a lot of those come on jumpers too uh steal rate of 4.6 that's absurd uh, that's super high. Um, so I, I, I came away more concerned over Shepard's uh, defense overall with this. But the one thing that I have zero doubts about is that he has some of the very best hands in the country. Um, it bails him out of a lot of stuff, but it forces a ton of turnovers and causes a tremendous amount of chaos. 
So I'm actually curious, why don't we dig into this more? What led you to be sort of lower on his defense after this dive? Because certainly I get the concept of the numbers are insane and it'd be hard for anybody to live up to those numbers on the film. But I am curious why that sort of ended up being your takeaway from this evaluation. Yeah, I'm, the the more I, you know, just singly honed in on him, um, I thought the fundamentals were a lot sloppier than they were in the beginning of the season where um you know instead of sitting down in a defensive stance every time and you know i'm just it, it i'm sure it's on your bingo card but about to talk about defensive footwork here there um, we go. but I mean, he crosses his feet a lot uh he you know he does that kind of fake defensive stance where he's bending over at the hips more than you know actually bending his knees and getting in a stance to slide with the guy um and that puts him behind the play a lot of times and gives guys that angle to the rim. A lot of the times he's able to utilize his incredible hands to, you know, what, once they gather and go up for it, he's constantly swiping down and he's so accurate that he rarely gets called for fouls on that. So that that's a legit skill, but it would be nice to kind of keep those guys out of those areas to begin with. Um, additionally, kind of on top of that, what makes those fundamental inconsistencies more concerning is that he plays with very little physicality. Um, on defense where there'll be a lot of possessions where he does a really good job of moving his feet and kind of staying rim side, but he never really deters the guy from getting to a spot. He's not, he rarely takes contact to the chest and, you know, really walls a guy up. Um, you know, a, a guy that I always think about, uh, one of our favorites, Davion Mitchell and at Baylor, he's sliding his feet. He's taking contact to the chest. He's drawing charges 30 feet from the rim because he's beating the guy to the spot and anticipating and inviting that contact. And I never really see that from Reed where, you know, he'll, he'll stay attached. He'll stay in front of the guy, but the guy's going to be able to get to the lane pretty consistently as long as he's able to, you know, maintain his handle and avoid uh, those pesky hands. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I've mentioned ad nauseum on here to the point where I'm sure everybody's sick of hearing me say it. But, you know, everything in the college game that's a matter of feet is a matter of inches in the NBA. And so, you know, if you get if you allow yourself to get beaten on a decent number of plays because you're confident that you can, you know, swipe at the ball as the guy's passing by and take it away from him you know, your window to do that at the NBA level is just going to be smaller than it is at the college level. So I definitely get it from that perspective. Something else that you bring up, which I think ties in really nicely to the physicality stuff you were mentioning is him dying on screens. And that this year has very interestingly that it's been this year specifically, but has come up for me a lot with some of the prospects who, you know, I am marking down defensively because they have this tendency to die on screens. I don't think I have more of a problem with this for anyone than I do with Cody Williams. And he's still third on my board, which you know tells you a lot about the rest of Cody Williams' game. But yeah, it's it's something that, you know, for a smaller guard, you know, you mentioned Davion Mitchell, which of course is going to, you know, make me very happy. But you know, the concept there is Davion never gave up on even a fraction of a play, right? It's like, you know, even okay, I let this guy slip past me on the screen and I'll recover to him a half second later. Davion's fighting over that screen every time. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where it seems like sort of small potatoes, especially in the college game, and especially for someone like Reed, who's, you know, got the kind of defensive playmaking stats that he does. But it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you continue to sort of put lackadaisical effort around getting around those screens, you know, maybe it's not biting you now when you're, you know, playing for Kentucky and being the best defensive guard for Kentucky and generating a lot of, you know, turnovers for Kentucky. But if you're going to be tasked with a primary ball handling 
or rather guarding the primary ball handler defensively, you need to be able to fight around those screens at a high level. And it's one of those things that's difficult to evaluate because, you know, maybe it's the kind of thing where you don't care as much at the college level and you get to the NBA and you realize I have to care about this to get minutes. So I'm fighting around screens more, but it also doesn't mesh well with some of the other negatives that you brought up from Reed's defensive profile, which maybe makes it a bit more concerning for Shepard than it might be for someone like Cody Williams, who has a lot more size to recover, even if he's not exactly fighting over screens. Yeah. And with, with, with wings, it's obviously a, a much wider room for error there because a guy like Cody has the stride length to then recover eventually and get back rimside or the length to contest from behind. Um, even a guy like Nikola Topic, who dies on screens constantly, um, his screen navigation is abhorrent, but he's got four or five inches on Reed. So even if he does recover or just has to switch, he's able to kind of battle with the screener a little more effectively um, than Reed is, where if he dies on a screen, um, he can't switch that. If it is, if he does, it's going to be two points almost every single time in the pro. So he's going to have to be in a system where he can't switch and he's going to have to get over those screens and either funnel the ball handler to a rim protector or get back rim side really quickly. And he is so far away from being able to do that consistently that it does concern me a little bit. And, you know, just even looking in this draft, a guy who I think is substantially better than that, who I don't think is anywhere near, near as good as he is on offense is Devin Carter of Providence, where we see how physical Devin Carter is what a physical guard looks like, where he's inviting uh, contact. He's initiating contact. He's bumping guys off their drives. His screen navigation is incredible with his, with his ability to kind of slither over the top and then still stay rimside and stay attached to the ball handler. And too frequently, Reed will just kind of walk into the screen and call it quits. And I don't think it's an issue of not caring because I never really get that sense from him when he plays. It's more of a just lack of understanding of how to do it. It's it's almost like he's never been taught how to navigate screens. Uh, probably given how incredible of a defender he is, just naturally. But it, it's definitely a big area that he's going to have to improve in. Yeah, and you know that's one of those things that you know. On the one hand, there's sort of the element with Devin Carter specifically that he's an older, stockier prospect, yeah, and sure. that's the kind of thing that changes over time. But you know, again, as you know, we'll get into the positive stuff because there's a lot of positive stuff to dig into with Reed's oh, defense. Yes. But, you know, in terms of the, in terms of sort of, you know, sticking with some of the problem areas for a little bit longer, it's kind of similar to some of his offensive stuff where there's an element of, okay, you know, he's 19 and hasn't had time in an NBA weight room. That'll come around. But the important factor is to what degree will it come around, right? Will it be the kind of thing where, okay, he puts on 15 more pounds and he, you know, is able to muscle his way through contact to get to the rim more often. And on the other end of the floor, he's able to fight through screens better. You know, that's sort of the most positive view of the potential outcome, right? But there's an element of it, which, you know, again, is him relying on his hands a lot more than maybe he should. And, you know, him, maybe the passivity on offense is one thing, but, you know, with the defensive stuff, it's okay. You know, maybe once he bulks up a bit more, this will be easier, but, you know, again, the effort thing that you mentioned, I think is key. He's not someone who I, you know, expect to struggle with this on defense because he's not trying because he, you know, that's, that's not an area of concern really for me, but it's the kind of thing where 
if you're not really showing much fight over screens now, how much is getting stronger really going to change that? Yeah. And it, you know, it feeds into the mentality stuff too, with the physicality, um, you know, like a guy like AJ, AJ Johnson, who we talked about the other week. Um, I, I think AJ plays with a lot more physicality, despite probably being 10 pounds less than Reed right now. And so, you know, when, when we think about AJ adding another 15, 20 pounds, two, three years from now, I, I'm really encouraged about how that will kind of translate given his current mentality, despite that weight differential with Reed, it's like, okay, is it really going to matter? It'll obviously help in some form or fashion. It's impossible to hurt. Um, but to what, le- like you said, to what level is it really going to change things for him? If he's already right now, not playing with a whole lot of physicality and playing more of that kind of finesse defense, it's effective in spots, but the ultimate upside of it just makes me question a little bit. And just before we move on, I'm, I'm nitpicking a lot of this, but when you're talking about a guy who's going to measure six, one, six, two, um, and people are talking about as a top five, top 10 recruit or prospect, I, I feel like you really have to dig into the weeds because there's so little room for error. Now the, let's move into some of the more positive stuff with his defense. I think they, as you mentioned, the nitpicking is important, but I think to spend the entire time nitpicking with Reed in particular does sort of overlook what he does bring on the defensive end. So, you know, we talked about his hands at length and the ridiculous steals rate, but there's one other thing that you mentioned in the defensive section of this piece that I do want to get to, which is the concept of him figuring things out as in game action that, you know, you mentioned one coverage against Arkansas that he completely screws up the pick and roll coverage. And a few possessions later, he already has done a better job of adjusting. And that's the kind of thing where that would lead me more towards the sort of, he's figuring things outside rather than the, you know, this is going to be a problem end of like, okay, you know, he's someone who's relied on his spectacularly quick hands, you know, not just throughout his basketball career up to this point, but this season at Kentucky, it's been spectacularly effective. And, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, you know, as the season has gone along, there have been some lapses that maybe weren't there at the beginning of the season. But the flip side is that he's figuring out more of, okay, you know, just how much can I rely on my defensive gifts and how much do I actually have to, you know, figure out and anticipate in advance rather than just sort of hoping that, okay, I'll be able to fight my way back into the play later. I, I do think he's an incredibly smart defender. Um, the the clips that you mentioned, I, I think are a really great kind of highlight to that because you, you, we, we've seen stuff from him kind of adjust and improve between games and, you know, over stretches and months and like we do with most prospects. Yeah. But it, I that kind of stuff where you see it in game, just a couple of possessions apart, I think is so cool. Um, and just a real Testament to the, the processing ability of a young player. That's pretty rare. Um, you know, off ball, sometimes he'll just like randomly turn off and get kind of caught over helping and late to recover. But he also has some of the most impressive off ball defensive clips I've seen from anyone this season with his ability to tag and recover and jump passing lanes. Um, the the IQ the awareness with him is really it, it could be really 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 special. It's funny because I remember us talking about you know sort of the more negative side of this with Kendall Brown back in the day, but the concept of players who are able to read the floor exceptionally well on one end of the floor, you know, 
I think Kendall Brown is almost the exception that proves the rule in that most of the time, if you have an incredible grasp of how to read the floor on one end, you'll also be able to apply some of that to the other end of the floor. And what we see with Reed's vision on the offensive end is something that, you know, I think as you're mentioning is, you know, on the defensive end, again, he's relied on his tools for a while. And the more he starts to sort of lean on his understanding of the game of, you know, his ability to read the floor, that's the kind of thing that will take him from someone who can, you know, be a defensive contributor to someone who can, and, you know, again, pretty much every NBA prospect is a defensive negative as a rookie, but, you know, with given how quickly, as you mentioned, Shepard has been able to pick things up even during this season, it's the kind of thing where I would be surprised if, Reed Shepard in March of his rookie year is anywhere near the same level of defender as Reed Shepard in October, November of his rookie year. Yeah. And it, he, he has the family pedigree, you know, to kind of back up those hopes and optimism too. Uh, but, but we also see it from him on the court and we see it by the game, by the week, by the month. Uh, the, the defender that he is now is significantly better than the defender he was in October. Um, so that, 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 I really don't have any concerns that that's not going to continue to improve, especially the off-ball stuff, the the recognition, the jumping, the passing lanes, the defensive playmaking, the ability to tag and recover and switch and rotate and all all of that kind of nuanced stuff um, that doesn't always show up in the box score but makes a world of impact um, in the actual game. Like you said, by, by the end of year one, I, I would be pretty surprised if he's not really – adept and connected and honed in on what his team's defensive strategies are and what they're asking uh, their guards to do. And I, I would expect him to be doing it at a pretty high level, obviously adjusted for being a rookie. Adjust, yeah. Adjusted for the rookie <laughs> reverse bump as yeah, it were. Exactly. All right. Anything else you want to cover on this one before we wrap things up? I I don't think so. I, I, I do just want to reiterate. I really like Reed Shepard. I think he's really good. I have him in my top 10. Um, like with all these guys, I just I think it's important to nitpick so we can kind of figure out what the concerns are and how real they are. And there's so much to like about him. He's really good. He's really, really good. Yeah, I mean, I've talked here about how, you know, and I wrote about this at length a couple of years ago about how I tend to try and view the draft stuff with class half full optimism of, you know, I want to buy into players fixing yes. their holes. But, you know, the flip side of that is, you have to be honest with it, right? And if you're just looking at, you know, purely the box score for Reed and saying, wow, this guy's spectacular. Why isn't he number one in the class? You're doing a disservice to yourself as an evaluator and you're doing a disservice to the prospect in that, you know, if everybody is a perfect prospect and you only look at the positive things, then, you know, you would think that every single prospect should go number one and you're not, you know, necessarily doing a good job of, you know, picking through, okay, what makes him a, you know, what makes him statistically such a great defender? What makes him statistically such a great offensive player? And, you know, sometimes that leads to the nitpicking of, okay, this is something that, you know, maybe doesn't shine through in the numbers, but is an area that he needs to improve on. The flip side, of course, is, you know, if you're looking at it from that perspective, you can tend to sort of lose the lose sight of the bigger picture of, wow, okay, he has these sort of defensive flaws. And if he cleans this up, he can be even better versus, oh, I'm only talking about the negative stuff because there's nothing positive to talk about. That's clearly not the case here. Absolutely. There, there, there's always reasons to get excited. It, and and then you find the the questions. You, you, you It's important to challenge your previously held beliefs and figure out if they were correct, if there are some cracks in the foundation. Um, Reed's not perfect. 
but God, there's so much to like. And yes, his numbers are outlandish, but I still think they're pretty real. Yeah, there's a lot of supporting evidence for a lot of those numbers. Absolutely. All right, so that will do it for us today. He is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at TeamMetcalf11, and you can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.